0: And let's take our Bibles. We will turn to Zechariah chapter 12. As we come to Zechariah chapter 12, there's such a beautiful part of the passage that we'll be looking into this morning. They will look on the one they have pierced. This tells of God's faithfulness, forgiveness, and grace. Have you ever had a person that was only there when there was something in it for them? You could count on it. If they needed something, they turned to you. But if things were going well, they turned away from you. They forgot you. You were unimportant. If you've ever experienced a dysfunctional relationship like that, you have a glimpse into what God experiences from many who only turn to him in moments of trouble, in those times of concern. Oh, they become focused on God in those moments. But when things are going well, when there is no need, they forget all about Him. In the passage that we're looking into this morning, Zechariah talks about an event that is yet to take place. That event will be the return of Jesus Christ, that event will come to a people the people of Israel, who had been very fickle in their relationship with God. When there was prosperity, they would forget God. They would go their own independent way. When there was trouble, they would quickly turn to Him. When we look in the Scripture, this cycle repeated itself again and again and again, throughout the Old Testament. But then it culminated when God sent His one and only Son into the world. And as we saw in Zechariah chapter 11, the people of Israel turned from the Messiah that had been promised. They turned from the one that God had sent to save them and to deliver them from all of the terrible things that they were experiencing We fast forward when we come to chapter 12. And what we find as we come to chapter 12 is God teaches us about this one that they pierced. You see, when Jesus Christ came the first time, he ministered among the people of Israel and he was drawing them to a relationship with the Father through him. There was rejection. He was crucified on the cross, not just by the followers of God, the Jews, but also by the Romans, by all men. He was crucified. And that rejection meant that there was a separation from God. As a people, Israel has continued down that path of separation because they haven't embraced the one true Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But what we're going to see as we look into the text this morning is that is going to change. Now here's a chart I hope, I, sorry for the small writing, I'll tell you what it says. This is a timeline, if you will, of events that are to come. Jesus Christ represented by the cross The church age, even though it's only that wide on the chart, represents the time that we are in right now. It is a time where the followers of God are those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, trust Him as their Savior, embrace Him as their hope for salvation. Anyone can come into a relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ. This is the age in which we live. Even those who are Jewish people can turn to Jesus as Messiah and become completed Jews, experiencing a relationship with the Father through Jesus, the Messiah that was offered to them as a people. But then we have hope because the next event on the timeline is the rapture. The rapture is when God will snatch away the church. Jesus Christ will return in the clouds and He will bring the church to meet Him in the clouds. And they will experience that connectedness, that relationship with Jesus Christ that has been so promised. There are seven years of tribulation. The first three and a half years will be a time of relative peace. The second half of the tribulation will be a time of terrible things described in detail for us in the book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 19. It's a time where God unleashes His wrath on the earth because of their rejection of Him and of the Messiah. But then, Christ will return. Right at the end of that time of tribulation, Christ returns. And this is where the 12th chapter picks it up. You see, there's a scene that takes place just before Christ's return. And that scene is this. Israel will be holed up in Jerusalem. Nations will come against Israel, surrounding it, getting ready to wipe it off of the face of the earth. That's their intent. And just as they're pressing in on Jerusalem, Christ returns and stops it and delivers his people. That's where we pick it up here, in Zechariah chapter 12. So let's look at this text. And what we want to see first is this, the protection of God's people on that day. Now we're going to see that phrase, on that day, several times through Zechariah chapter 12. And what we're going to see that it represents is that day of deliverance when all of the nations are gathered against Jerusalem to crush it, just when it appears to be its bleakest and its blackest, there Jesus Christ will intervene and he will stop it. And he will deliver his people. Now why is he able to do this? Zechariah begins the 12th chapter, this prophecy, with a reminder of who God is. Look with me at the first verse. And it says this. This is the word of the Lord concerning Israel. The Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundations of the earth, who forms the spirit of man within him. He is the one who is behind this promise. He is the one who is declaring what will take place. So let's reflect on this. Here the word of God is reminding us who God is, if there's any doubt about whether or not God will pull this off, all we have to do is remember who makes the promise. And look at how he's described. He's described, first of all, as the one who stretches out the heavens. Now, we don't get a great perspective on this here in Chicago, do we? We look up the sky and we see maybe a star or two. You know, the light pollution that surrounds us takes away our ability to see what's going on around us, right? In the heavens or in the skies. But man, you you get out away from these lights. You go out in the country. You go someplace where it's a clear night and there isn't all of the ambient light around you. And what do you see? You see stars upon stars upon stars. God is the one who stretched that out, who created it. Would anything that he says be too difficult? And the answer is absolutely not. As a matter of fact, the more we explore the stars, the more we see the wonder of God's glory. When we look at pictures of galaxies, of systems outside our own from the Hubble telescope and others, and we see the magnificence of God's creation, that is the handiwork of God. He is the one who is behind this promise. He is the one who has stretched out the heavens. Look up and you see God. Look down and you see God because he's also the one who laid the foundations of the earth. Anywhere you stand, there God has laid the foundations. He created this world. He created this earth. He has power. And we need to receive this understanding that God created everything that we see above, everything that we see below, all of it is the handiwork of God. Is there anything too difficult for him? The answer, of course, is no. Then look what else we see. He has formed the spirit of man within him. Your very life, your very breath is a gift from God and is a testimony to God's existence. The word that's translated spirit in this text can also be translated breath. The very breath that you take every time you breathe in, you inhale and exhale, that is from God. Life itself from God. So God is the one who is making this promise. God is the one who sees to all that is going to take place. And that brings us to the next part of the passage. The power of God is more than able to protect His people. When we look at descriptions in Scripture of the end times, and we see that after three and a half years during the tribulation, there will be a time where the entire world turns on Israel and seeks to wipe it out. God protects his people. Oh, they will flee and they will be persecuted, but they will be preserved and protected. And what we find is as they reassemble in Jerusalem, God will protect them then. And just before Jesus returns and his feet touch on the Mount of Olives, the people of Israel are protected by God. Look at the second verse. I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding people reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. Now, here is a glimpse into the future a bit of prophecy concerning what happens just before the return of Jesus Christ and what we see in this glimpse. It's frightening if you're a Jewish person in Jerusalem or in the area around Jerusalem, Judah. You see an array of nations gathering together to come in for the final assault. You see the city of Jerusalem surrounded on all sides by people who are committed to your destruction. Look at verse 3 and it says, "On that day when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves." Do you catch the picture? God, because of his faithfulness, not the faithfulness of his people, but because of his faithfulness, he will protect the Jews in Jerusalem and in Judah, and he will make them an immovable rock. You ever had a immovable rock? Man, you can go up to that rock and try and move it, and you're definitely going to hurt yourself, right? It's immovable. It's too heavy. It's too solid, it's too strong. You can get mad at the rock and you can kick it. But I guarantee you're going to come out on the raw end of that deal. I'm not going to say this by experience, but I can guarantee it. The immovable rock pictures for us the strength of Jerusalem, the strength of the people of God, and not because of their own personal strength but because of the strength that God gives them. Verse 3. On that day, when all the nations are gathered against her, God makes them the immovable rock. The people who try to move it injure themselves. Then look at verse 4. On that day, I will strike every horse with panic and every rider with madness, declares the Lord. I will keep a watchful eye over Judah, but I will blind all of the horses of the nations. Now, here it's talking about the war machines, the war mechanisms, all of those things that are arrayed to bring destruction and rain it down on Jerusalem, they will be halted. And God will throw the conquering forces into confusion. And then look at verse 5. Then the leaders of Judah will say in their hearts, the people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. They're going to look and they're going to say, None of this is by our doing. We are hopelessly outnumbered. We have so many troops gathered around us that we couldn't defend ourselves if we wanted to. The only thing that is keeping us alive is God Almighty. And that will become evident to them as a people. Isn't it a great story? When the underdog triumphs. We love those stories, don't we? We love to see the experts proven wrong. We love to see the underdog triumph. This is the ultimate triumph story. And the reason for their triumph isn't them trying a little harder it isn't forming an alliance with somebody else. There's no one to form an alliance with. All of these nations are against them. Their one key to success, and they know it, is God. It becomes crystal clear to them, but it also becomes crystal clear to those who are assembled against them. Imagine the frustration of vastly outnumbering your foe. And not being able to do what you want to do. Even as you outnumber them. This is the picture of what we see. Then we come to the sixth verse. And we see the preservation of God's people. The scripture says, On that day, I will make the leaders of Judah like a firepot in a woodpile. Like a flaming torch among the sheaves. They will consume right and left all of the surrounding peoples, but Jerusalem will remain in her place. So here's the picture. Nations swarming Jerusalem. And instead of coming in and smothering it and wiping it out, it's like a fire pot in the middle of a wood pile. You know what a fire pot is? It's a little pot that they used during the time of Zechariah to keep a fire going. They would keep embers in there. And when they wanted to start another fire, there it was. They would get the embers from that little fire pot. Imagine taking a fire pot and putting it in the middle of a brush pile where there's wood, dried wood, where a spark would set it on fire. Here is a pot full of embers Imagine what that would do. Imagine a torch in a bunch of sheaves, basically the stalks of wheat that are left over that are tied up, and you light it with a torch. <laughs> it burns up instantaneously. That is the imagery of God's protection of the children of Israel, his promise to them. Then look at what else we see. In verse 7 it says the Lord will save the dwellings of Judah first so that the honor of the house of David and of Jerusalem's inhabitants may not be greater than that of Judah. On that day the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them will be like David and the house of David will be like God, the angel of the Lord going before them. On that day I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. So can you picture this, the feeblest among them? Picture an old man bent over with a cane, barely able to move, and then rising up and striking them with his cane and chasing them away. That's the imagery that we have. In other words, God will supernaturally empower this nation, these people, to withstand the onslaught of attack that surrounds them. This is what happens at the end of the tribulation, at the Battle of Armageddon. God is bringing all of these forces together to be utterly destroyed. So here's the imagery. This city holding its own in the midst of overwhelming worldwide forces coming upon them, swarming upon them, and then something happens. We come to verse 10, and we see that God... Provides for the children of Israel, not politically, but spiritually. And something dramatic takes place in the hearts and the lives of the Jewish people. Look at verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. What happens first? Those who have rejected Jesus as Messiah, who have stood diametrically opposed to him, who have seen him as a false Messiah, God is going to do a work in their hearts. The Spirit of God is going to work in their hearts to turn them from rejection to receptivity. You know, the scripture describes the spiritual climate of many who had rejected Jesus in the first century and continuing to this day. Look at what it says in 2 Corinthians 3:14. But their minds were made dull. And it's speaking of Paul's own people. Remember Paul was a Jew. He called himself a Hebrew among Hebrews. The minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But anyone who turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There are many within the Jewish community who are called Messianic Jews. They have embraced Jesus as their Messiah, and they're among us today. They worship him. They love him as their Messiah. But they are just a small portion of the Jewish people. Most see Jesus as a false Messiah. And as Paul describes it, there is a veil over their eyes and over their hearts that's only taken away when they turn to the Lord after the Spirit of God works on their heart. But here we see something different. There will be a transformation that will take place, as we'll see in just a few moments. We also find this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting at verse 3. It says, If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Listen. There are those who do not receive Christ, and they have a heart that is veiled to his truth. There is even satanic activity that blinds them to this truth. But when we open our hearts to the gospel, God opens the way. This is what happens with individuals as they turn from themselves to Christ and find in Him the hope of eternal life and a relationship with God the Father. God offers that forgiveness and that relationship to anyone. But what we see here in Zechariah chapter 12 is unique Rather than individuals turning to Jesus, we're going to see an entire nation turn to Jesus. Look at that 10th verse. And right in the middle of it, it says, They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. What is Zechariah referring to? We know that the one who is pierced is Jesus Christ. Isaiah said this, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. This is Jesus, the one who is pierced. So here's the image Jerusalem surrounded. Jesus is coming. And here is Israel looking to heaven, seeing Jesus Christ coming. And they see the one that they have pierced and their hearts are crushed. We have rejected this Messiah as a people for thousands of years. And it was him all along. The one that we pierced is here to deliver us. He's the Messiah. John said this. At Jesus' crucifixion, he said, the man who saw it has given his testimony. So he's speaking of himself, John the Apostle. And his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And another scripture says they will look on the one they have pierced. Now Zechariah was partially fulfilled on the day of Christ's crucifixion as a nation looked upon the Messiah that they rejected. And upon looking On him, there was that partial fulfillment. But it's not completely fulfilled until Jesus returns. And in the midst of their trouble, they look up and they see Jesus coming to the Mount of Olives. In fact, the book of Revelation says this, look. He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Isn't this a great promise, great hope? It's a great hope for those of us who love Israel. It's a great hope for those of us who look forward to God fulfilling his promise to his people. They will look on the one they have pierced. And they will see him for who he is. And they will embrace him as Messiah. What follows to the conclusion of this chapter is amazing. In verses 10 through 14, the last part of that 10th verse, we see the mourning that takes place, the repentance that comes into their hearts. Because it goes on to say they will look well, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Do you catch the magnitude of their grief? You see, as they look upon Jesus, the one that they have pierced, the one who is coming to deliver them, the unexpected Messiah, there's remorse and they look And they say, what have we done? We have rejected God's provision, the Messiah. And so they mourn. And the description of their mourning is profound. Like one who loses a child. Now, I haven't lost a child, but I've walked through that with those who have. And I can think of no greater grief than a parent who has lost a child. It's heartrending, heartbreaking. This is what they feel as they look upon Jesus and recognize their national sin of rejection. Look at what else is described. Verse 11 On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be great like the weeping of Hadad Rahman in the plain of Megiddo. Now, this is an interesting verse, the 11th verse. Hadad Ramon refers to the plain in which Josiah, a righteous king of Israel, was killed. And there was a national mourning that took place when Josiah was killed on the field of battle. And so the point that Zechariah is making is this. There won't just be individual mourning. There will be a national mourning that takes place as a people, as a group, as a whole. They will look upon the Messiah that they have rejected and who has now come in His grace and in His supplication. And they will respond with a national grief. Look at verse 12. The land will mourn each of them, The clan of the house of David and their wives, the clan of Nathan and their wives, the clan of the house of Levi and their wives, and the clan of Shammai and their wives, and all the rest of the clans and their wives. This national mourning, it's interesting the way Zechariah divides those that he mentions by name. David would have been the kingly line, Nathan a prophet, and then Levi and Shammai priests. So, king, prophets, priests. When Jesus Christ returns, he will be the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And as a nation, they will recognize that and they will grieve for having rejected him. God's grace in all of this to me is the most amazing part. God had made promises to Moses, Abraham, David. And they will be fulfilled on this day. Even as a rebellious people, turning their back on God, rejecting the Messiah that He provided for them, even as they are holed up, ready to be destroyed, in His grace He returns to save them. And when they look upon Him, the one they have pierced, the Spirit of God who has been working in their hearts and in their lives will move them to trust Him. And you know, this is a picture of how God works in the heart of any who reject Him. There are people who reject Jesus during our time. They see him as a good man, a good teacher. They see him as a historical figure, the head of a religion, but they reject him. That cause that's all they see him as. I encourage you this morning, if you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, to look upon the one who was pierced for your transgressions and see the importance of receiving Him. Maybe the Spirit of God has been speaking to your heart and has been laying upon it your need to embrace Him as your Savior, the one who died, to bring you into relationship with the Father. There was a response from the people to where they place their faith in Jesus. And that ushers them into a time where they are delivered from their sin and they reign with him. May I invite you this morning, if you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, to do that this morning. Trust him. Become a follower of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this text. What a blessing it is to us to have a passage like this that so vividly pictures your forgiveness and your grace. Lord God, may we be faithful to follow you, to turn from rejection to receiving Jesus, the Messiah. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.